Hello, good evening, good day, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of the Indian Interest. It's a show we haven't done for a while, but things are so interesting right now in the world in geopolitics that it is well. It was necessary to start this podcast all over again. So, welcome to the podcast, and let me see before we begin who all is there with us. I can see Mood E, Brio Raj, Nikhil Singh, the rock star, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. Random Atoms, Origin, YK, Karan, Sarthak, Lin, Lineshwar, Ronit, Nandan, Shriyam, Maud E again, Pranav Efforts, Herbion Wheels, Anahita, Sushant, Nilesh, Harsh, Shaheen, Sagar, Atharva, Arsh, Sachin, Shivam, Thomas, Shaswat, Siddhant, Swapna, Trupti, Athira, Rahul, Nikhil Singh Negi, Abhishek, Natranjay, Nandan, Rajkumar, Typical Gamer, Mayank, Pradeep, Nishan, Rita Singh, and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you, and thank you for being on this podcast. So what shall we talk about today? So today, it's obviously not going to be a Q&A show. We will do the Q&A tomorrow, in tomorrow's episode. Today, I'm going to talk about a few things that, that are happening right now in the world. And we obviously, as you know, the Indian interest in this podcast is about understanding and analyzing world events, geopolitical events of importance from the lens of the Indian perspective. So what's happening in the world right now? What is important? So let's begin on a slightly lighter note, shall we? Let's begin on a slightly lighter note and go to the not so great Britain, the so-called UK. They call themselves Great Britain. It's not so great anymore. Right, GB, Great Britain. So, what's happening in Great Britain right now? So, yeah, things uh, things are happening there. You know, so a few important, interesting, not important, but interesting developments in the UK. So, for instance, let me share my screen. Uh, that that what's that individual's name? Swella Braverman. She resigned a couple of days ago. Right, today is October twenty-two. Three days ago, she resigned. So, here's what I wrote about that on Twitter. Here we are. So, Swella Braverman sent her resignation to the Prime Minister and she put that on Twitter. Very interesting, very uh, nice words and all that, right? And uh, she took many digs at the Prime Minister. Uh, right? So here's what I wrote about this. I said that this is not a resignation. This is a bid for leadership, a challenge to the British Prime Minister, Liz Truss. That's what I said about this matter. And uh, about 24, less than 24 hours after this letter, uh, Liz Truss resigned. So that's what happened in the UK. Uh, one second, let me see the connection. Are we having good? Let me check the connection speed and all that. One second, just give me a second. Sometimes you get these technical difficulties. Um, one second. Just give me a second. Let me look into the technical stuff. I think we should be back now. Hopefully. Are we back? Are we back or not? Let me see. Lag, lag, lag. People are saying it's back to normal. Some are saying it's just lag, lagging a bit, buffering. Fine now. I think it's fine now. All right. All right. Apologies for that. A little minor thing. Now. Now. So, uh, yeah, that's what I said. This is not a resignation. This is a bid for leadership, a challenge to the British Prime Minister Liz Truss. And less than 24 hours after this tweet, uh, Liz Truss resigned, right? So uh, 
and you know a few days i mean how, how many days ago had i said this i think about 2 3 weeks ago i somebody had asked me a question about les truss uh is she going to be a good prime minister bad prime minister strong prime minister and, and so on something like that and i said that les truss is uh, is a nobody and she is not going to be very she is she is essentially irrelevant the uk is more or less the new japan in japan apart from the great uh, and the late shinzo abe there's been a revolving door of prime ministers who come and go come and go come and go because japan is essentially a vassal state of the us it's under permanent us military occupation and everything that happens in japan happens with america's uh, permission essentially and they don't want there to be any any strong japanese leader that could possibly in the future uh, pose a challenge to us hegemony over japan the same thing you are seeing in the uk now in the past few years right they have reduced the uk to the same status as they have reduced japan to so i had said in response to that question just a few two three weeks ago i had said that uh, liz truss is essentially a nobody she is not going to matter and she is not going to achieve anything of any significance and here we are i think she's the shortest serving prime minister or one of the or one of the shortest serving prime ministers of all time in the uk so she is out of the revolving door and now we don't know who's going to come next right so that's what's happened and there are a bunch of nobodies nobody like politicians who are now again in the fray for that uh, for that irrelevant position of the uk prime minister because it doesn't matter who the uk prime minister is it doesn't really matter because the nation the uk is now a vassal state of the us it's the americans that are controlling whatever happens there so it's it's something like something that you put on your cv that yes i was pm of the uk for so and so months or so and so weeks or whatever it is that's how it is so people want to put that on their cv and that's why you will have a new race now uh new race for the prime minister and who is in the fray for that uh, clearly this lady what's her name this indian origin lady swella braverman she is in the fray for being the next prime minister she did uh, did put up her her bid over here yeah in in indirectly then you also have what's his name the indian what's his name what's his name sunak rishi rishi sunak so people are again very excited especially in india that yes the uk may once again be possibly going to have uh, a, an indian origin prime minister or a hindu prime minister so to those who are getting very excited about this let me tell you that the uk prime minister is a nobody that person doesn't have any real power so whether you have a person as a puppet of indian origin or whatever it makes no difference it's not going to help india in any way right it may make you feel happy or whatever but it it doesn't really matter in the world so you may have rishi sunak getting back in 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 the fray or you may have suella braverman who may throw her hat in the ring or you may even see possibly an attempt by mr boris johnson to return as the prime minister of the uk uh Boris Johnson is a very interesting character obviously we know that right uh it is said that his ambition his earliest ambition as a child was to be the king of the world right so that was his his ambition to be the king and later on obviously as he grew up he realized that he is not going to be the king of anything but but then his ambition then uh became a little smaller in it that was the that was to become the prime minister of the uk and he did achieve that uh, in doing he did achieve that ambition <clears throat> that objective he did become prime minister until he was overthrown quite recently and replaced eventually by liz truss liz truss is gone so boris johnson may possibly consider uh, throwing his hat in the ring as well and try to be pm again now 
you know in in a in a strong nation the prime minister position or or the position of the president or whoever rules the nation is it should be nothing but a stepping stone to serving the nation so any real leader or strong leader their ambition should not be to be the prime minister or the president their ambition should be to serve the nation in the greatest way possible and for that you want to become the prime minister or the president depending on what kind of system you have and once you become the prime minister then that's when you try to achieve your actual ambition of serving the nation and making it greater the end the 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 biggest ambition should not be the, to be the prime minister or the president it should be to serve the nation but in the case of of somebody like boris johnson his greatest ambition was simply to be the pm not to serve the nation because he didn't end up serving the uk in any great way whatsoever so the uk let me once again tell you is an irrelevant nation it is not a first class or first rate world power it's not a, not even a second rate world power it's a third rate world power it's only a uh, relevance is is that of uh, a money launder uh, as the as the global money laundering epicenter or hub of the world where every single tin pot dictator or despot has a, a bank account and investments whether in, it's in london or wherever else and most dictators and fugitives they end up in london eventually and they buy big properties there so that's all the uk is and it it essentially serves to wash the nation the world's dirty laundry and dirty money that's the only relevance the uk has who the prime minister is is completely irrelevant it doesn't matter who becomes the prime minister the nation is irrelevant right and now you're going to see more trouble for the uk there's a referendum that's been proposed by the by the scots by scotland this referendum could play take place in 2023 this is an independence referendum so the scots may once again try to become independent it's called indiref2 so let's look at the the background of this what happened i mean there was a, a referendum earlier right in scotland i think it was in 2014 and about 55% of the population of scotland those who voted about 55 55% of those voted no that we do not wish to leave the united kingdom right they said no so the majority vote was no but then you had the brexit the the exit of the uk from the eu the european union and this happened on 31st of january on the 31st of january 2020 see about, about about five and a half years after the scots voted to not leave the uk now the problem is this when it comes to scotland that approximately 60% of the votes more than 60% of, of the votes in scotland were opposed to brexit but overall the uk supported brexit and that's why the uk left the eu so the majority of the people of scotland did not want the uk to leave the eu so now there is this uh, this internal pull within the uk the scots wanted to remain in the eu but overall the uk voted to exit so clearly the hopes and aspirations of the people of scotland do not match the hopes and aspirations of the people of the overall uk and that's why there is possibly going to be a new referendum and this time the result could be very different this time most people the most of the people of scotland may possibly vote to leave the uk and that could set off a chain reaction there is northern ireland which is illegally under occupation by the uk by essentially by england there's wales Wales also is not essentially an English uh, region. They have their own language, the Welsh language, which is being slowly destroyed. 
and, and by, by English imposition. And similarly, when it comes to Scots Gaelic, the language of Scotland, that also is being essentially annihilated by the imposition of English. Most people in Scotland don't even aren't even able to speak that their own language. So that's what's happening. So you may have these things cropping up very soon. Scotland could possibly vote to leave the UK in 2023 and maybe that could trigger off something in Wales and possibly in Northern Ireland. Now, Northern Ireland is under forcible uh, occupation by the UK, right? So I'm not sure if, if they will even be allowed to hold a referendum. But yeah, there could you could see these things happening. You could possibly see, uh, probably not, uh, see problems uh, cropping up once again, like the troubles the the Northern Ireland, they call it the insurgency, which was the freedom struggle against uh, English occupation, right? Which was essentially funded by the US, which uh, most people will not speak about, but that's what happened. That's how it was. Um, and as soon as the, that, that guy, what's his name? Tony Blair, as soon as Tony Blair became the prime minister of the UK, these, the Northern Ireland insurgency miraculously ended, right? And uh, you had the, the the peace deal and all that. So you could see things cropping up again in the UK. Troubles for the UK. Scotland may vote to leave. There could be something happening in Northern Ireland and maybe something in Wales. Essentially, in the next few years, maybe a couple of decades, you may actually see one or more partitions of the UK, which would be what I would call karmic justice. Yes, we would like to see the UK partitioned. We would like to see the people of Scotland regain their freedom, which they have been fighting for 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 at least a thousand, for almost a thousand years. Um, you you we know that uh, the Scots fought for their independence multiple times. You've seen that movie, right? The very famous movie Braveheart. Um, William Wallace fighting alongside uh, or or under the the banner of Robert the Bruce against uh, the English occupation under Edward Longshanks who was a descendant of William the Conqueror, and so on. So the Scots have fought for their independence for nearly a, a millennium. And it would be good to see them achieve their independence, right? And the same goes for Northern Ireland and also for Wales. So we would like to see this sort of justice happen, and we would like to see the UK partition, which is nothing but, um, you know, something that... <laughs> would represent the hopes and ambitions and the just fight, the just struggle for independence for the occupied territories. So yeah, that, that's something that could be coming up. That would be, I think that will happen eventually, sooner or later. So yeah, that's about England, about the UK, what's happening there. Liz Truss is gone. Like I said, she was irrelevant. She did indeed turn out to be irrelevant. When I said that she's a nobody and she's irrelevant, a lot of people got angry. I saw a lot of comments, a lot of angry comments, <laughs> which are obviously still there. You can look it up. And people are saying that, what do you mean by she's irrelevant? She's achieved so much and all, all that. Well, here you are. Here you are. She's gone and she did not achieve anything. One of the shortest serving prime ministers of all time in the UK. And things are not going to get better for the UK. Well, I'm not complaining. <laughs> all right. So now let's talk about something else. Uh, let's talk about a different matter. Uh, what other topics do we have? We obviously have China. What's happening in China? What's happening in China? So uh, a few, uh, I don't know, once again, just a few weeks ago, there was this big, big brouhaha on the internet about a possible coup in Beijing. 
there's a possible coup in Beijing. Maybe Xi Jinping has been arrested or put under house arrest or, or God knows what's happened. And some army general, PLA general has, has replaced him, right? And I think I was the only person at the time who said that this is most likely not a coup. This is most likely the opposite of a coup. I had said at the time that it is most likely a consolidation of power by Xi Jinping, by Mr. Xi, within the Chinese Communist Party, to consolidate his power ahead of the 20th CCP Congress, right? Uh, the 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party is, it ended today. It started on the 16th of October. It ended today, 22nd of October, Saturday. And I had said that this is most likely a consolidation of power by Mr. Xi ahead of the 20th National Congress. And yeah, Mr. Xi did indeed disappear for, for a few days. Uh, train, thousands of trains were cancelled in China. Thousands of flights were cancelled in China. Uh, if you looked at um, the airspace above China on various uh, tracking sites, you could see you, you, it looked like a war zone. Nothing was flying over Beijing and other places. So most likely, I said this was an internal, uh, you know, a consolidation of power, maybe a purge. What they call this a purge. When when uh, the leader of the nation in a communist nation uh, expels or, or essentially uh, essentially uh, deposes or in, in, in a variety of ways removes from power people who could represent a challenge to him in the future. And clearly, uh, I, I don't think anybody else said what I said, that this is most likely a consolidation of power by Mr. Xi Jinping. Uh, none of the Indian commentators, not even the Western media said that, said that. And obviously, it turns out that I was right. There was indeed a consolidation of power by Mr. Xi Jinping. There was no coup. And uh, he was very much present in the 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, which happened which happened this week, right? It's It's got over right now. And so a couple of interesting things, things happened in the 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. First of all, there's a new uh, central committee that has been uh, elected, selected, constituted, whatever you want to call it. There's no real election there. It's all orchestrated from the top, top down, not bottom up. A bottom up event is an election of some kind, a top-down event is a selection, appointment, or constitution of something. So there's a new 205-person central committee that has been appointed or selected by, essentially by Mr. Xi Jinping, a bunch of his hand-picked minions, you could say, yeah, people who he knows will, will be 100% loyal to him, and most likely it is in the prelude to this selection or election that he... Uh, consolidated his power, maybe by getting rid of uh, people who could possibly represent a challenge to him in the future. So essentially, this is a big a bunch of people, the Central Committee, which has been stacked with Xi Jinping loyalists. These people will be 100% loyal to Mr. Xi Jinping. So Mr. Xi Jinping is essentially now the de facto emperor of China. And uh, his ascension to the top post for another term will be will be confirmed in the coming months, yeah, pretty much soon. And another interesting thing that happened today, on the last day of the uh, 20th National Congress, is the public humiliation of Mr. Xi Jinping's predecessor, Mr. Hu Jintao. So Mr. Hu Jintao was the president of China, dictator of China, whatever you want to call it, until 2012, from 2007 or thereabouts until 2012. And he was the direct predecessor of Mr. Xi Jinping. And he handed over power to Mr. Xi in 2012. 
So he is Mr. Xi Jinping's former boss. So today he was publicly humiliated in the 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. What happened is that he was sitting right next to Mr. Xi. Let, let's put that on the screen, shall we? So that you get to see some images if you haven't already. Let's take a look at what happened. So this is uh, by by from CNN, I believe. Come on, on the screen. Here we are. Former Chinese leader Hu Jintao unexpectedly led out of room as party congress comes to a close. And these are the visuals. So the guy who's standing here, the elderly person, is Mr. Hu Jintao. And he was sitting right next to Mr. Xi Jinping. Or he was sitting to Mr. Xi Jinping's left. And Mr. Li Keqiang was sitting to Mr. Xi Jinping's right. And two security guards who were wearing the same kind of dress came over to Mr. Hu Jintao. They physically led him up and they escorted him out of the room. He looked extremely reluctant to leave the room, but that's what happened, right? And uh, let's put another image on the screen as well. Another such uh, report. Uh, where it is, where it is, here it is. This is from the BBC, Auntie Beeb. So Hu Jintao, the mysterious exit of China's former leader from party Congress. And there you see again what's happening. He's trying to speak to Mr. Xi Jinping and ask him what's happening. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, he was forcibly removed. This could be the final final throw of the dice or final consolidation by Mr. Xi Jinping to remove anybody who could possibly uh, represent a different way of thinking from his and, and consolidate uh, and, and ensure complete consolidation of power in China. So what does this mean for us here in India? For us here in India, it means that China now has an absolute leader who, suppo- who, who seemingly has no more challenges to his rule in China. That's more what it most likely means. So Mr. Xi Jinping over the years, over the past decade, and even before he came to power, has left a lot of what you, what the mafia would call bodies in his wake. So as so the, the Chinese system is extremely cutthroat, the Chinese political system, the, the, the strongest and most ruthless politicians rise to the top. You can't rise to the top if you are, you know, a, a goody-goody guy. And you cannot rise to the top unless you are completely ruthless and brutal. And Mr. Xi Jinping has destroyed lots of political careers on his way to the top, right? And uh, typically how we do that in the Chinese Communist Party is by uh, accusing people of corruption. And that is a very dangerous accusation because that typically carries a death penalty or an extensive jail sentence, typically a life sentence. And lots of people have been uh, accused of that at various levels in the Chinese Communist Party. So that's the most convenient way of getting rid of political opponents in the CCP. Uh, Now, I'm not sure what charges have been leveled at Mr. Hu Jintao, if any, but this was clearly an act of humiliation. Mr. Hu Jintao is is a rather elderly person. I believe he's 79 years old, almost 80 years old. Mr. Mr. Xi Jinping is at least 10 years younger than him. I think he's 69 right now, right? So he is consolidating his power. That's what we are seeing right now. And this was the final ritual act of consolidating his power, most likely. And maybe there could be more such things happening in, in the coming days and months. So that's where we are. So this means that we now have an absolute ruler in China who most likely has no opposition within the, within the Chinese Communist Party and its various organs like the PLA, the People's, the so-called People's Liberation Army, and so on and so forth. Right? So that uh, is... is a consolidation of power in China. Now, what does it mean for India? Like I said, it means that uh, there is going to be political stability in China. We know the Chinese economy is not doing well. They are not even releasing their GDP figures right now. 
they haven't released the GDP figures for this year. And uh, whatever GDP uh, predictions were there, whatever GDP uh, numbers had come out were not very flattering for the Chinese Communist Party. Obviously, there's been a number of uh, setbacks. The whole world has suffered the pandemic and, and whatnot. But yeah, China is not doing very well. Its population is aging. It's aging rapidly. Economic growth is slowing down. It's almost a middle-income nation. The wages uh, earlier were very low. Now they are reasonably high. And there are all these problems. The People have been predicting a, a collapse of the Chinese economy for many years now. Maybe that won't happen, but it's certainly not going to grow the way it was go growing under, for, for example, Mr. Hu Jintao. So during Mr. Hu Jintao's tenure, the Chinese economy was growing at 10% plus. And now during Mr. Xi Jinping's tenure, it is slowing down almost to a crawl. So these are not very good days for the Chinese economy, for the Chinese nation overall. And China's great superpower bid, China's great gamble to become a superpower has been essentially derailed. It's essentially been derailed. What was the great gamble the Chinese did? It was the Belt and Road Initiative, the OBOR, One Belt, One Road. One belt to rule them all, one road to tie them and bind them or whatever. <laughs> so th this was an extensive pan-Eurasian uh, uh, construction bid to construct this entire huge infrastructure, the supply chains, railroads, rail railways, roads, and, and even a sea component, the so-called maritime silk route and all that, This, which was supposed to uh, uh, tie China's economy and... and uh, connect it with the overall Eurasian economy, especially that of Europe. And that would uh, allow China to trade even more extensively with Europe and slowly bring all these nations under China's uh, hegemony. Right? Uh, to become a superpower, you need to have a massive economy and you need to have an economy that is interlinked with the entire world's economy. So the Chinese wanted, Mr. Xi Jinping essentially launched this project to interlink China very deeply with, with the rest of the world, especially Eurasia. And as a result, because of China's incredibly large manufacturing prowess, to export even more manufactured goods to, the, to, to Europe, to Eurasia, and enrich China at, at, as a result. And that would hopefully, that was, that was a hope, it would make China the next great superpower. Now, what happened? What happened is that the coronavirus pandemic happened. And people say, well, Indian various 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 people have called the coronavirus the Wuhan virus. I may perhaps I myself have been part of that on Twitter, calling it the Wuhan virus, the Wuhan coronavirus, and all that. But let's see who benefited from this coronavirus pandemic. The Chinese have suffered greatly as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. Their economy has suffered a lot from this pandemic. And their, their OBOR, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, now essentially sits dead in the water. European nations are no longer interested in the Belt and Road interface to the extent that they were 10 years ago. There is no great enthusiasm for the BRI, Belt and Road Interface. And there are all kinds of problems that have happened, including the, the Ukraine conflict. So the, the Belt and Road in, uh, Initiative is essentially... Well, it's frozen. It's not, it's not going anywhere right now. And because of that... The Chinese can no longer hope to achieve the rapid growth that they were hoping for. And they can no longer hope to become a superpower and by, let's say, in the next decade or, or whatever projections they had. That's not going to happen. Right? So that's that's a big problem for China. And it's 
under these circumstances that Mr. Xi Jinping is, is rising to the top position, I mean, he already is at the top position, but he's consolidating his power. I am sure there must have been many murmurs of disapproval against his leadership and the results he has brought. See, leadership can be good or bad, but at the end of the day, you have to produce results. You may be a great leader, but if you don't produce the results, that's not good enough. In China, results are all that matter. That's how... Uh, that's just how the system is. So, uh, Mr. Xi Jinping does face many challenges. There's the Taiwan situation as well and lots of other problems. So it is in this, in these circumstances, under this set of circumstances, that Mr. Xi Jinping has consolidated his power. He will most likely be uh, uh, confirmed for another five-year term or maybe another hundred-year term, whatever it is. Yeah, But it is quite likely that he could be desperate considering the such circumstances. Because in China, if a leader doesn't perform, you, you are essentially doomed. No matter how many people you've stacked your party with, who are your loyalists, there could be problems from various quarters, maybe unexpected quarters. So if you have an all-powerful Xi Jinping, but who is also a desperate Xi Jinping, that could be very dangerous for the region. China is not a world power. It is a major regional power. It is the number one Asian power. Right, the two other great Asian powers are India and Russia. One, I would, I would put Russia above India in terms of military strength, not economic strength, but military strength. So, that's that's a dangerous situation. A desperate China, a desperate leader who desperately wants the people of China to to remain on his side in the face of a stagnant economy. You know, in the face of all these lockdowns that are happening in China, for some reason, China is still repeatedly uh, seeing these lockdowns in various parts of China, whereas the, uh, the rest of the world no longer sees these outbreaks of the virus. So something fishy is happening in China and the Chinese are struggling to contain these outbreaks. They are placing large regions of China repeatedly under lockdowns. The economy is not doing well. You could have a great deal of uh, unease among the Chinese population. And there could be some resentment against Mr. Xi Jinping. If there is a situation like this, well, how does one, how does one bring the Chinese people back on your side if you're the uh, dictator of China? The easiest way to do that is through a military victory. That would again uh, see a resurgence of nationalism and national pride among the Chinese population. Yeah, things are bad, but we are doing well militarily. We defeated so-and-so nation. And we are. It, it proves how great we are. That's an easy way of doing it. So... That could indicate that if Mr. Xi Jinping is desperate, he could look for an easy way out against an, an opponent, against maybe a neighboring country that he may feel could be quickly defeated in a short, sharp war. So that's what the neighbors of China need to be wary of. China is indeed a strong military power. Its military budget is, is like three or four times that of India, maybe five times. I'm not sure, something like that. So every neighbor of China needs to be aware of this, needs to be cognizant of the situation that, that Mr. Xi Jinping finds himself in. And uh, we need to be forever alert, semper vigilance, always vigilant. So that is the situation in China right now. I will come back to China because there's more happening with China vis-a-vis -vis the US. The US is increasing more pressure on China every single day. So let me revisit that. But before that, let's talk about India and, and the US. So uh, recently, the Americans... Our good friends, the Americans, recently uh, released what they call their national security policy. It's a document that they release from time to time. I don't think it's done every year, but every, every new administration does that at least once. So they have released this document in public. 
the US national security policy. Wonderful, nice read. Yeah, multiple pages and all that. And Indians are very happy about this document. Because first of all, uh, there is no mention of Pakistan in the document, which obviously pleases Indians a great deal. If there is no mention of Pakistan in a US document, Indians are very happy. Indians feel like, yeah, we, we have done it. We made it. We pushed Pakistan out. And secondly, India has been mentioned, I think, seven or eight times in the national security policy of the US. So that, again, makes Indians very happy. Wow, they, they mentioned us seven times or eight times or whatever it is. Indians are so happy with nice words. Yeah. It's so easy to please Indians. Say a few nice words about India. Mention India multiple times in the document. That will please Indians. Yay, let's celebrate. Utsav ki karo. Like you say, right? What does this mean? Does it? And, and, and they have mentioned India as essentially an ally, I believe, in that national security policy document. India is an ally. India is a major defense partner, blah, 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 blah. And yes, the Indian population is happy. Indians are happy. Indian commentators and analysts are happy. The news channels are going gaga, gaga over this. What does this all mean? Are India and the US allies again? So first of all, let's understand something. Warfare is based on deception. Yeah, good old cliche. We've all heard it a thousand times. All warfare is based on deception. All geopolitics is also based on deception. You never let your enemies and your allies know what you're really thinking. That's what it's all about. Now, when that is the entire foundation of geopolitics and of, of everything, of warfare, diplomacy is war by, another, uh, by other means. So when deception is the entire foundation of warfare, when you're releasing a public, public document, are you going to put your genuine, your real national security policy in there? No, obviously not. Whatever national security policy the US publishes is only for public consumption. It's not the real national security policy. It doesn't make any sense for them to tell the whole world what they truly seek to do and what they truly think or feel about their national security and what their policy is going to be. Why would you tell the whole world what your policy is going to be? You would never do that. So the national security policy of the US is a public document. It's a document for public consumption. It's a document that essentially serves to mislead the world, to, dece to deceive the world. All geopolitics is based on deception. All competition of any kind is based on deception. You're playing cricket. Are you going to tell the opposing captain and the team what your tactics and strategies are going to be? You never do that. Whether it's cricket, whether it's football or whatever else, you never do that. You hold your cards as close as possible to your chest and you don't reveal your plans. So why would the US reveal its plans, its policy? The US national security policy should not be taken seriously by anybody who has a thinking, thinking mind. Right? So India is mentioned seven or eight times, Pakistan is mentioned zero times, and China is mentioned, I think, one more time than India. So if India was mentioned eight times, I think China was mentioned nine times. Or if it's seven, then eight. Something like that. So take that. Now, there are other things also you have to consider. Actions versus words. A document that is released in public is a collection of words. Why do words make you so happy? I just don't get it. Words are meaningless. Words can be changed at any given point in time, as, as in, as in well you, when you wish. You have to look at the actions. If you want to understand what the US really feels about India or what their real policy is, don't look at their words, ignore the words, look at their actions. And look at the actions of their proxies, of their vassal states. Please do that and you will understand what's really happening. So let's take a look at some of the 
actions of the US vassal states. Shall we? So which are the US vassal states, by the way? Uh, if you have for any given, for any time, for any stretch of time, watched this channel and, and listened to what I say, you will know that South Korea is a U.S. vassal state because South Korea has been under permanent U.S. occupation, more than 100 military bases since the 1950s. Japan is a U.S. vassal state, more than 130 permanent military bases of the U.S. on Japanese territory, uh, most of them since 1945, right? Then you have Germany, which is a U.S. vassal state, again, under permanent U.S. military occupation since 1945. The same goes for Italy. Then you have Spain. I haven't mentioned Spain before, if I... If, I'm, if I can recall correctly, Spain has, I believe, only two U.S. military bases. One is called Moron and one is called Rota. So both of these U.S. military bases have been in Spain since the 1950s, between 1953 and 1958, right? And the U.S. military base in Rota in, space is, in Spain is one of the largest military bases they have outside their country. So you have Spain, you have Germany, you have you have. The entire EU is essentially a collection of U.S. vassals because the one major power in the Europe, in Western Europe is the U.S. It's not Germany or France or any other nation. It's the U.S. which is the major power. It is the one power that has held Europe together and prevented any warfare because of its oversight. So NATO is a bunch of U.S. vassal states. The European Union is a bunch of U.S. vassal states and so on and so forth. Right? That's how it is. So now let's... Un now I said... Ignore words and look at actions. What's happening? What actions uh, are we seeing? Let's take a look at some of the actions of the U.S. vassal states, shall we? So let's talk about South Korea. South Korea and Pakistan hold high-level talks on defense cooperation. That's, 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 that's wonderful. That's all right. But then what was the outcome of that? So this was from October 11. Now let's take a look at something that happened subsequent to October 11. This is from October 13. Pakistan and South Korea signed a defense deal. Isn't that lovely? They have signed a major defense cooperation agreement to further consolidate the bilateral military relationship between the two nations and blah, 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 blah. Now let's understand something. When you talk about South Korea and defense, the South Korean military is headed by a five-star general who happens to be an American general. It's always an American who heads the South Korean military. Why? I mean, can you think of a free, independent nation whose military is led or headed by a citizen of a different country? I mean, can that even happen in a free country? It's impossible. You, you, No free country, no self-respecting nation would entrust its military and its national security and its defense to the citizen of a foreign country. But that's what you always have had in South Korea since the 1950s, more or less. So that's where you that, that's where you are with South Korea. So Pakistan and South Korea have signed a defense deal. So that is one of the actions of a U.S. proxy, a U.S. vassal state. So they're talking about uh, India being an ally. On the other hand, you have this happening. Now let's take a look at Japan. As long as Shri Shinzo Abe was alive, Japan and India had great relations, right? We know that. He was a genuine friend of India. Now look what's happening here. Japan rolls over a $172 million loan vis-a-vis uh, -vis Pakistan. So this is something that's happening vis-a-vis -vis Japan. And you are also seeing various other Japanese investments in Pakistan. And of course, we know that the Americans are offering a massive uh, 
deal to the to the Pakistanis, that F-16 deal, right? It which is worth almost half a billion dollars for uh, for servicing and upgrading their F-16 fighter planes, right? So that's what's happening. And the American, uh, what's his name, ambassador to to Pakistan has been referring to the illegally Pakistan-occupied Jammu and Kashmir is AJK, whatever the hell that means. We know what it means. I will not utter those dirty words here. So that's what the Americans are doing. Now that again is words, but these are words that have a diplomatic, ad, that constitute a diplomatic action. Right? It's not just some empty words that have been published in, in, a, in a document. When it comes to diplomacy, words are also actions. When it comes to publishing a document, that's just hot air. So the Americans, through their vassals are doing all this. The, the South Korea is, is has signed a defense deal with the Pakistanis. Japan is waiving off Pakistan loans or deferring Pakistani lo loans to Pakistan. And, uh, you know, they are also investing in, in a variety of ways in Pakistan. You have the Americans themselves doing what amounts to enemy action against India. You know, aiding Pakistan in any way militarily is an enemy action against India. That's what they're doing. And, and again, you have other things that are happening. For instance, uh, like I mentioned Spain, didn't I? So here's what the, Span uh, the Spaniards are doing to India. Let's take a look at that. Spain rejects visa of 21 Indian wrestlers for under-23 world championships uh, under the pretext that uh, the embassy doubts the intention of the Indian wrestlers to leave Spain, to leave the Spanish territory. So 21 Indian wrestlers will not be able to take part in the under-23 world wrestling championship in Spain. Right? So this is another example of, of what you can call stealth sanctions on India by the US by proxy. Um, and uh, okay, here's another example from the Sunday Guardian, which explicitly speaks about uh, Victoria Newland's stealth sanctions against India. Let's take a look at this. Here we are. Here we go. Victoria Newland's stealth sanctions against India. And it goes into that. So a communist Chinese citizen can get a visa to, for travel to the US in two or three days. But a citizen of India has to wait for two or three years for the privilege. Unless one of them, unless you, so if you are an Indian citizen who already has a pre-existing multiple entry US visa, then you're fine. But if you are a citizen who doesn't, an Indian citizen who does not have a visa and who wants to apply for one, it will take you two or three years just to get, just to have an, get an appointment. Right? And this has been explained away by Secretary of State Anthony Blinken as being the consequence of stuffing cuts caused by the pandemic and so on and so forth, which is obviously a flimsy lie and so on. Right, So that's what uh, the Sunday Guardian calls US stealth sanctions against India, visa denial and a whole lot of other things. I, I heard that a couple of Indian, Indian companies had been explicitly sanctioned by the US for, for whatever, right? So you are seeing all these hostile actions by the United States against India. So no matter what they put in their so-called national security policy, that's not going to change the fact that their actions are all anti-India. You're seeing more and more of this happening right now. So please understand. And, and obviously, I did I forget to mention this? Uh, Pakistan has been removed from the FATF gray list, the Financial Action Task Force, which means that now China, uh, now Pakistan can get any kind of investment from the West, from any nation, without uh, that nation having to worrying about that investment being used for terrorist activities, which is a complete lie. The entire reason for being of Pakistan is to be a terrorist nation, right? <laughs> so Pakistan is a terrorist nation, and now they have been removed from the FATF, which is apparently headed by headed by an Indian. 
how nice <laughs> uh and so on right so uh the all these organizations global organizations global bodies etc are all controlled by either the us or to some extent to a slow, lower extent china the chinese have infiltrated the un the who etc to at a, at a variety of levels but overall it's still all controlled by the united, united states so i think it was yesterday or today or in the last 24 hours that the news emerged that pakistan has been removed from the gray list the the watch list the gray watch list of the fatf and obviously this is all done at the behest of the us it is all done under us supervision so now they are once again using pakistan just like they did in the 20th century against india as as a counterweight to india in order to destabilize india and these are messages they are sending to india that fall in line get on your knees against us uh, uh, in front of us or we're going to you know you're going to you're going to ratchet this up further so please do not get uh, get enthused by the the nice flowery language they've used in their national security policy mentioning india seven or eight times and calling india an ally and major whatever partner major defense partner security partner they talk of the indo pacific and all that forget the words look at the actions the actions are all right now anti india and this i expect will get worse as the days go by because india is is refusing to um, to to have a foreign to become a us vassal state yeah india has an independent foreign policy india has a foreign policy that is in line with india's long term national interest and the us doesn't want that they want the foreign policy of india to be in line with the us national interest and whatever the us wants which would obviously be not good for india or any other nation right so that's where we are so i don't expect things to get better anytime soon between india and the us maybe it will actually deteriorate uh, so we need to keep on watching this very closely right so that's the thing about the us national security policy and whatever they've said in that please do not be misled or fooled by those nice words okay what else is happening in the world mm, saudi arabia opec brics so the saudi uh, we know the organization of petroleum exporting countries opec has uh, recently uh, decided to cut down oil production which will raise oil prices which is something joe biden and his party did not want because that will result in more inflation in the us and that could hamper the democrats uh, bid to win the midterm elections right uh, so they had so joe biden had asked demanded ordered the saudis to not cut down on the oil production but the saudis Uh, have gone ahead with this the saudis are the biggest uh, of the opec countries right the, the major oil exporter in the world if i'm not mistaken yeah so this is going to be bad for the us and the us i believe is now releasing some of its uh, some of its oil reserves in order to in order to keep oil prices below a certain level which is which obviously will displease the us to a great deal and make them very very angry and upset with mohammed bin salman the king or or the de facto ruler of saudi arabia not the king but the de facto ruler of saudi arabia now the other news that has emerged is that saudi arabia has uh, asked apparently to join brics let's take a look at that so it is it is something that the that cyril ramaphosa the president of south africa has disclosed that saudi arabia wants to join brics this is what the south african president cyril ramaphosa has said has disclosed now what does this mean what is brics i think we all know what brics is if you live in india 
Brazil, India, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. These are the five nations that make up the BRICS group of countries. Out of these countries, the three nations that really matter are India, China, and Russia. These are the three major nations, the three great powers uh, apart from the US. The US is a superpower, and these three nations are the three great powers in the world today. India is now one a member of the League of Great Powers. And you have Brazil and South Africa as well in this grouping. Recently, I believe this June itself, Iran has applied to join BRICS. Yes. And now we have the news that South Africa also wishes to join BRICS. So you could have a BRICS plus or a BRICS plus plus emerging, maybe a new world order emerging, you know, the so-called global South. You have BRICS. Or you have you could have BRICS plus plus if Iran is inducted and Saudi Arabia is also inducted. Saudi Arabia was created by the British Empire. Understand this: the nation of Saudi Arabia was created by the British Empire, and the purpose for the of this of doing this was to safeguard Britain's oil and and geopolitical interests in in the Middle East region. After 1956, when the center of gravity or center of power was transferred from London to Washington. The, the U.S. essentially became the major patron of the Saudis. The, the major uh, Saudi Arabia essentially be, was once a vassal state of the U.K. and it is now a vassal state of the U.S. But now it is going very strongly against the U.S. Uh, demands or directives, right? So this could be a this this looks like a very dangerous game that that the Saudis are playing, especially Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, it's it's uh, dangerous to go starkly and very strongly against U.S. Uh, against the United States in this manner, in in a, in a in a manner that's directly uh, detrimental to U.S. energy security, uh, I I think it's a very dangerous game that Mohammed bin Salman is playing. But let's say Saudi Arabia joins BRICS or applies, then this this could totally um, totally uh, change the global world world order. You could have see we have on the one hand we have the U.S. led vassal states right uh let's take a look at the u.s vassal states in in in, in case you want to see what what they look like uh one second let me put that on the screen um so this is a recent tweet by lloyd j austin the third the secretary of defense of the u.s uh, which in which he said that this is what unity looks like. This was on October 12. Today, I gathered defense ministers of nearly 50 countries to discuss the latest battlefield developments in Ukraine and to work together on how we can continue to support Ukraine and blah, 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 blah. So he gathered, he gathered, you know, he's the great shepherd who gathered his sheep together. The defense ministers of nearly 50 countries. These countries, whichever they are, are the major vassal states of the US. They, these would include whatever the, you know, the usual suspects and so on. So on the one hand, you have a bunch of American vassal states along with the US, which includes the five eyes nations, the US, Canada, UK, Australia, and New Zealand. That's the five eyes nations. Then you have NATO, then you have the European Union and various other vassal states of the, of the US, which are spread around the globe, including major nations, like Japan, South Korea, and so on and so forth, so on and so forth. So on the one hand, you have this grouping of countries, the US and its its flock, its vassals. On the other hand, you have the so-called global south. They call it the global south. Earlier, they used to call it the third world, right? So in this, you, the major grouping, the most powerful grouping of nations is the BRICS grouping, which could eventually become soon, possibly BRICS++. Then you have the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SCO, which includes 
China, India, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan also, Russia, Tajikistan, Iran, Uzbekistan, so on and so forth, in which obviously the top three nations, the most powerful nations are India, China, and uh, China, India, and Russia, and also a group of other countries, in which Pakistan serves as the eyes and ears, possibly of the US to some extent, or maybe of China. So you have the so-called global south, which is now emerging as a separate block of countries, separate group of countries, which could e include Iran also. And you have the so-called global north or, or the first world, which is the US and its vassal states. You are seeing this bifurcation of the world order in, in progress in, right now as we speak. It's happening very rapidly. So uh, in case what the, uh, in case what the, President of South, of South Africa, what he said is true. That could represent a very major development, uh, an almost unthinkable uh, development that the Saudis would apply or would want to join a, a grouping of nations that essentially represents everything that the US doesn't like, which essentially represents a different world order from the US-led so-called rules-based or whims-based world order. So, yes, so interesting development. Saudi Arabia wants to join BRICS. If that is true, it's very interesting, very, very significant. And obviously what they are doing with OPEC is, is very detrimental, essentially, to the U.S. foreign policy, U.S. national interest. And the U.S. will not be happy about this. And I don't even know what repercussions the Saudis could suffer as a consequence of this. It's never a good idea if you are a U.S. client state, if you are a U.S. vassal state, to go against the diktat of of Uncle Sam. We have seen what happened to people like Saddam Hussein, who were once the darling of the US, right? So it's very dangerous. And I hope Mr. Mohammed bin Salman knows what he is doing. India and Saudi Arabia share a very good, very warm, very positive and mutually beneficial relationship, which is all thanks to Prime Minister Modi. Before Prime Minister Modi, there was no before Prime Minister Modi came to power in 2014, was elected to power in 2014, India-Saudi Arabia relations were, were nowhere as strong and as, as dynamic and as positive as they are now. Right? So uh, I hope Mohammed bin Salman knows what he is doing. I hope that uh, the India-Saudi Arabia relationship continues to get stronger in a mutual mutually beneficial way but yes very interesting developments and I, I, I would like to see what the Americans done do about this. There could clearly, I mean, right now, <laughs> Ukraine is the linchpin of the global, uh, of the U.S. geopolitics, the U.S. global strategy. Venezuela, which the Americans destroyed, essentially. The, the Americans destroyed the Venezuelan economy in the last 10 years. Now Venezuela is again in the good books of the U.S. because they have a lot of oil and the Americans want oil. Saudi Arabia is not playing by the U.S. rules. So maybe now Venezuela could again, you know, benefit from American largesse and maybe Saudi Arabia could face some consequences of what's happening right now. So yes, this is something we're going to keep an eye on. I'm going to keep an eye on. I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep on talking about this in the forthcoming episodes of the Indian interest. But yeah, as of now, for today, this is where we stop about Saudi Arabia and BRICS and the SEO and all that. Now, let's talk about something else. What other interesting topics do we have? There obviously is... Um, let's go to this. So another interesting that's thing that's happened and which most people are not talking about is US sanctions on, on, on China. And I'm not talking about uh, the regular sanctions, the, the kind of sanctions they are imposing on Russia. These are very specifically targeted sanctions. The Americans are calling these export controls. 
to be more specific semiconductor export controls what what's happening let's take a look at this i'm not sure if this is this has been covered adequately in the media let's take a look at this uh so us chip sanctions put temporary check uh, temporary checkmate on china that's what this article says it's in uh, the ee times whatever that is yeah uh, biden administration's escalation of the, of the chip war with china is expected to at once hamper china's foundry industry and cost multinational chip makers billions of dollars in lost sales so it's this article says there's this these sanctions are putting a temporary checkmate on china and yet there there are other views other perspectives on this which are are not as as um which which are quite different so let's let's take a look at this if it ever loads yeah so this is a thread on twitter by jordan schneider right who is an analyst on china on and on technology he's he also has his has his own podcast so let's take a look at this thread which i find very interesting the us government's new export controls are wreaking havoc on china's chip industry so let me go through the through the thread first and then explain what this means so new rules around us persons are driving an industry wide decapitation in the chip industry semiconductor industry in china lots of people don't know what happened yesterday this is this was tweeted on october 14 to put it simply biden has forced all americans working in china to pick between quitting their jobs in china or losing and losing american citizenship that's how <laughs> strong this is every american executive and engineer working in china's semiconductor industry resigned yesterday paralyzing chinese manufacturing overnight one round of sanctions from biden has done more damage than all four years of performative sanctioning against uh, under trump uh with the new biden sanctions all american suppliers of ip blocks components and services departed overnight thus cutting off all service to china long story short every advanced node semiconductor country uh, company is currently facing comprehensive supply cut off resignations from all american staff and immediate operations paralysis this is what annihilation looks like china's semiconductor manufacturing industry was reduced to zero overnight complete collapse no chance of survival all right so that that is that's a that's a whole long uh, thread twitter thread on this but i will stop it here so what does it mean the americans have essentially nuked china's chip industry semiconductor industry right and at the same time they are prioritizing their own industry so they want all this manufacturing to start happening in the us again right now the chinese were in the process of creating their own massive chip making industry semiconductor industry they have a great deal of expertise in that not as much as taiwan so all of this revolves to to a certain extent around taiwan where is taiwan we haven't seen the map today so why don't we look at the map in case we don't know where taiwan is let us find out where it is let's let's explore the map together where's the map well here's the map here we are we know where india is yes i hope we all do this is india let's go east 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 and here we have the island of formosa or taiwan right which is off the eastern coast of of china southeastern coast of china so taiwan has the world's 
largest semiconductor manufacturing industry chip ma- chip making industry which uh, and in most of the chips that go into our cell phones our 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 tablets our laptops and whatever else most of these chips they come from taiwan all right china taiwan is the number one manufacturer of chips semiconductor semiconductor all that the the chinese are trying to catch up with taiwan and become a major uh, chip maker themselves the americans want america to once again become the major chip making uh, nation in the world or at least be able to offset whatever taiwan could possibly not be able to give them because taiwan is something that the chinese covet the chinese would like to take over taiwan so what the american let's understand what the americans have done taiwan is something the chinese want to conquer they want to they call it reunification of uh, taiwan with uh, the motherland the homeland the mainland china if the chinese try to invade taiwan there is a very distinct possibility that the Thai- taiwanese will destroy will sabotage their their own factories their own industry of of chip making which could essentially give china a hollow victory they could possibly conquer taiwan but they will get nothing that the taiwanese were producing if the, the taiwanese destroy all those factories and all the, the entire chip making industry so the chinese in order to offset that that this possibility were developing their own chip making industry now the but it this depended to a great deal on america on american uh, talent on american executives and american uh, exports to china and all that now all of that has been stopped overnight so the chinese chip making industry essentially has been destroyed overnight so if they try to conquer taiwan and the taiwanese destroy the taiwanese chip making industry the chinese will be left with nothing in the meanwhile the americans will once again augment their own chip making industry and they will they hopefully for them will become the number one chip maker again in the world or at least be able to offset what they could lose if taiwan is conquered so that's what we are seeing right now that's what we are seeing so the americans have essentially nuked the chinese chip making industry by these so called semiconductor export controls which are much more than export controls they have essentially given an ultimatum to all us citizens working in china in this industry resign or you're going to lose your citizenship in the us your us citizenship that is a massive massive strike essentially almost like a nuclear strike on the on, on the chinese chip making industry so the trade war is hotting up it, it's it's crossing lots of limits um the us is deadly serious about about uh, ensuring that china does not become a superpower right and typically the chinese when they are faced with when when sanctions are put on china the chinese respond in some way they place some counter sanctions on american companies and all, all that but in this case i don't see i don't see china china being able to retaliate in any way they have no real leverage when it comes to this sort of uh the these sort of sanctions against them so i don't see the chinese being able to retaliate in kind maybe they will retaliate somewhere else but it does look like their chip making industry has been reduced to zero overnight and that is a very major development and i'm really wondering why nobody is covering this yeah so this is something i thought i should talk about and we will keep an eye on this as well let's see how this develops what shall we talk about next a uh, couple more things first of all okay let's uh, go back yes here we are so this is an interesting piece of news uh i am sure one second let me <laughs> let me put something else on the screen so this is something that uh 
the media has covered let me show you an example of what the media co- coverage was like it says that india this is from the times of india it's from october 20 uh, 21 which is yesterday yes today is 22 yes so it says that india has successfully tested the nuclear capable agni prime missile and it goes on to talk about the text the test uh, it says that the the ballistic missile has a range range of about 2000 kilometers which is the official officially stated range and so on and so forth it's it's a the smallest and lightest among the agni series of ballistic missiles so when you have a ballistic missile like the agni prime which has a range between 1000 and 2000 kilometers officially it means that it's essentially targeted uh, aimed at uh, neighboring nations that are a headache for india which essentially means that it is meant for pakistan and china that's what it means right now what these reports are not telling us is something uh, i will put on the screen that's why it is important to keep an eye on multiple sources of news keep an eye on twitter as well so this is a journalist uh, from uh, i don't know which organization maybe the print yeah so he says that meanwhile india today successfully tested the agni prime missile it seems that it has been tested with mirv technology which allows delivery of multiple warheads at separate locations this is interesting right this is interesting what is mirv technology mirv stands for multiple independently targetable reentry vehicle that's what mirv means it means that on a single missile you could put five warheads or two warheads or 10 warheads 10 nuclear warheads and each of these warheads will go to a separate destination that's what it means so on a single missile you can put multiple warheads and each of them goes to a different destination and it's it's, it's really hard to 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 um it's really hard to combat this sort of technology it's very hard to intercept mirv warheads because they all they they re, uh, most likely they are released after the reentry of the missile into the atmosphere and then they go off in different directions it's really hard to intercept these mirv warheads and only a number of a small number of nations have mirv technology the us has it the russians have it and the chinese have it most likely and i'm not sure if anybody else has it france uk i'm not really sure about that and france and uk don't really uh, well they are not that significant obviously uh, as compared to the other nations right because they don't have completely independent foreign policies so india seems to have tested mirv technology we knew for a long time that india has mirv technology how do we know how do we know how have i known for a decade that india already has mirv technology mirv technology is the same <laughs> it's the same thing as releasing a number of satellites it's the same thing as placing a number of satellites let's say 20 satellites on a single gslv or pslv rocket and once the rocket reaches the atmosphere you put the satellites you deploy the satellites in different orbits it's the same thing as deploying nuclear <laughs> nuclear warheads the only thing is you make the rocket re-enter the atmosphere and then you deploy the warheads in different directions so when a nation is capable of launching a single rocket with more than 100 satellites and deploying each of these satellites in precise predetermined orbits that itself is mirv technology that's a high level demonstration of mirv technology so india has had this technology for at least a decade this may have been tested in the past but i think now it has been semi officially announced it looks like and 
let's let's take a look at another <laughs> another media report that i think everybody has missed from about a year ago more than a year ago so over here it says uh come on on the screen here we go here we are india to conduct first user trial of the agni 5 missile now the agni agni 5 missile is a much longer a much has a much larger range much longer range it talks about mirv technology right um the next trial of the agni 5 missile assumes significance as it may be equipped with the mirv capable etc although the mirv capability of the missile was secretly tested during a multi satellite launch no live launch has been conducted so far and so on for the first time the indigenous mirv technology was tested successfully in the agni p missile with the weapon delivering two maneuverable warheads oh my god it's maneuverable it's mirv and marv at the same time so it delivered two maneuverable warheads at two separate locations and so on so mirv is about multiple independent reentry vehicles but marv is the those reentry vehicles or those reentry reentering warheads are capable of maneuvering around so they will not come down in a parabolic ballistic trajectory they may move around and not let you know until the last moment where they intend to hit the hit the ground so yeah so we have these these technologies we have had them for a long time it looks like it's been tested also but i don't i have not seen a single analyst geopolitical analyst or or strategic affairs expert or geopolitical expert speak about this well here you have it this is all happening so we have mirv we also have marv it looks like it's already been tested a few times perhaps yeah so interesting uh, things happening now why is india testing this only on the agni prime missile why not on the agni 4 agni 5 or something like that so this is all about signaling you can test mirv technology on the prithvi missile if you want i don't think the prithvi is capable of mirv but i'm just saying so you can test it on a short short range missile or a medium range missile or an icbm intercontinental ballistic missile when you test mirv technology on an intercontinental ballistic missile it sends a message to intercontinental nations so if you are testing mirv technology on let's say the agni 5 which is or agni 6 whichever whichever is the intercontinental missile it sends a message to the us or to other nations that are far away but if you test this technology on an agni agni prime missile which has a medium range you know it only targets china and pakistan it it kind of uh, reassures nations like the us that we don't mean this for you it's only meant at our immediate neighbors adversaries so it sends a missile it sends a message to pakistan and china but not to the us i mean the us also understands that you could place the same technology on a long longer range missile but it's all about you know keeping things calm and cool and sending a message only to to certain nations but it's to be understood that the same technology the same mirv thing can be placed on an icbm and it could be delivered to any part of the world essentially right and uh, yeah so that's what it is so this is interesting this is this is these are interesting developments that we are witnessing right now so that is something i thought that i should bring to your notice because i find it very interesting that we that nobody has spoken about this thus far so yes i have known personally that the, that india has this technology and it had it for a decade at least but now we are seeing it in action now the last topic for today obviously should we haven't spoken about ukraine today <laughs> so let's um let's conclude with ukraine 
and uh, yeah things are happening in ukraine things happen all the time the russians um, mr putin has recently annexed four territories of ukraine the donbas region and uh, you know the 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 four four provinces around four uh, provinces in that region let's go to the map and take a look we should obviously take a look at the map when we are discussing matters such as these so where's the map here's the map let's put it on the screen <clears throat> here we are so essentially about a fifth or a four about a fifth of the nation of ukraine the erstwhile nation of ukraine has been annexed by russia uh, the eastern parts of ukraine erstwhile ukraine the the donbas region the southern parts of ukraine along uh, along the azov sea region uh, crimea was already gone and so on and so forth and all of these regions have now officially become part of russian territory which means that these territories now fall under the russian nuclear umbrella so if anybody tries to take over these territories by force and they come close to succeeding it means russia will use nuclear weapons to defend its its territorial integrity so that is the dangerous situation we are seeing right now and there are battles going on with this point in time and one question that i see all the time every single day multiple times a day is what is russia doing russia doesn't seem to be winning why hasn't russian russia taken over ukraine thus far you said this would happen you said that would happen so is russia losing the war if you watch indian news which i watched about a week or 10 days ago it would look like the russians are losing very badly yeah and we know that the americans are supplying ukraine with all kinds of weapons and all that that's why the ukrainians are still going but what's happening why is russia why is russia taking it so so slow why have they not overrun the whole of ukraine by now right what we have seen is that the russians are adopting what what's called the classic slow war approach the classic slow war approach they're not fighting a 21st century high tech war a shock and o campaign like the americans always do wiping out entire cities and killing millions of people no the russians are taking it an inch at a time very slow very gradual very steady it's in some places they are they have even withdrawn in some places you we are hearing that the russians are are suffering setbacks against ukraine but what's happening we know the russians have not we know the russians have the firepower to flatten ukraine within 24 hours the russians have a massive air force we haven't seen the russian air force in action at all they have hundreds of fighter planes they have got strategic bombers they have got all kinds of planes that they could use and that could flatten ukraine in no time they haven't done that so what are they doing what are the russians up to why are they allowing the why why are they allowing the west to to create this this uh, this uh, this image of them losing the war so what's really happening is the russians are waiting for russia's greatest ally which is winter the russians are waiting for winter they know what's going to happen when once winter rolls into europe the europeans are facing a major energy crunch they were the europe was almost entirely dependent on the russian energy supply gas and, and petroleum products and all that now and and they have been shutting down shutting down their nuclear power plants and all that and now this nord stream thing has happened right a significant portion of the nord stream pipeline has been destroyed mysteriously yeah 
So now Europe is going to face a massive energy crunch. If some of you are living in Europe, you know exactly what's coming. So one option is to ration energy and not use heaters and all that for certain in, in certain hours of the daytime. Yeah. The other option is to purchase energy from the US at incredibly inflated rates. So the Americans are cracking the whip and showing Europe who's the boss. Yeah. And Mr. Putin is waiting for for winter. And winter has always traditionally been Russia's ally. Look back to the campaign of Napoleon during the Russian winter. Look at Operation Barbarossa in 1942, I think it was it, somewhere there, Second World War. Mr. Hitler, Hitler's ridiculously stupid campaign to, <laughs> to conquer Russia. They came within binocular distance of Moscow. And then they got bogged down, and the Russian winter was the was the price they had to pay for their failure of, of to, to conquer Moscow and their strategic stability of going down south instead of aiming for Moscow straight away. <clears throat> Anyhow, I'm digressing. But the point is, Mr. Putin is waiting for winter. He wants Europe to feel the crunch. This is war. The Russia is at war with the West, with NATO, with the European Union. With, with the U.S. essentially. Ukraine is a U.S. proxy. In warfare, all outcomes are fine. I mean, all, every, like, like they say, the old cliche goes, everything is fair in love and war. This is war and everything is fair. So, so Europe is now going to face this energy crunch. And that's what Mr. Putin is waiting for. And then let's see how it goes. But th that's what it is. So that's why Russia is adopting this, this classic slow war campaign, taking things slowly taking things one inch, one foot, one kilometer at a time, digging in, consolidating your your gains, maybe even retreating from some places. Let it go on. Let it go on. Let's wait for winter. We are, we are still in autumn. North India was frozen when I, when I, Northern India, uh, last week I was there, it was quite frozen. It was snowing there. But yeah, you, it's, it's, the winter has not even rolled in, into Europe and things are going to get much worse, much colder. So that's where we are. So that's why Russia is taking it really, really slow. They want the entire the Europe to feel the, whole, the, the brunt of winter in its full force. And then things will become interesting when, when you have February, March rolling in next year. And then we'll see what, what happens, what plans Mr. Putin has. So right now we are seeing all kinds of things happening. The, the, Global geopolitical realignment is visible right now in real time. Saudi Arabia is, is leaning towards BRICS, apparently. Iran wants to become part of BRICS. China is facing all kinds of problems, but Mr. Xi Jinping is consolidating power. The US-India relationship is not good at all. The US is now cracking the whip on Europe. And a whole lot of things are happening. There's, there's, there's new developments in Italy as well. Italy is not that significant a nation. There are there are developments in the UK as well. Once again, UK the UK is not that significant a nation. We are witnessing to some extent a rise of a resurgence of nationalism in some parts of Europe. Yeah, which is obviously um, which is obviously a consequence of of the last seventy years of American rule over Europe. But yeah, so that's where we are. So we will keep an eye on this. We will keep monitoring the situation. I will keep on updating you about what's happening from my perspective, right? I hope I have answered some of the questions that you may have, you all may have asked. I've got a lot of questions this week. I haven't even seen the questions thus far, but yeah. So I will take your questions tomorrow, and maybe we will re, you know, revisit some of these some of these uh, topics and points. So uh, yeah, that brings me to the end of today's session. Thank you very much.
for 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 watching and participating and i will see you in tomorrow's ask abhijit q and a session until then thank you very much for watching thank you for your viewership take care and i will see you tomorrow thank you bye